Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene, Part 3. That's it. We uh, have, there's 18 chapters in the Laws of Human Nature. It's our number one favorite book of all time. We only did six last time, so we thought we'd pepper a few more parts there because it's a fucking phenomenal book. Yeah, if you uh, we, we got in our number one in our top 50. Just a quick plug for that. If you want to check that out, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50 and you'll find our top 50 books of all time there. Or you can just listen to this to find out about the, the best one. one. <laughs> so the book is all about behavior and human nature and the things that we do and why we do it. And we're probably not really conscious of it. On one level, it's first to identify our own behavior. The second level is to then be able to consciously choose our behavior and make a few changes. And then the third level is also start to recognize some of these things in other people as well. So it's a phenomenal book, man. So the first two part episodes are probably our most popular episodes, what we've heard from people mailing in and stuff. So we really, really recommend you go and check them out. If you like any of our podcasts, go check them out. They're probably our best. What we did in part one was how to influence people, confronting your dark side and the shadow self, and all about envy and the ego. And in part two, we talked about role-playing and the different masks people wear. We talked about fitting in with the group. And we also talked about how to sort of take advantage of this moment we're in now and like tapping into the zeitgeist. And now in part three, we're going to be talking about taking a little more of a long-term perspective to life. We're going to talk about how you can change your outcomes by changing your attitudes. We're going to talk about empathy and then the, the fourth part, we're going to talk about advancing with a sense of purpose. So this one's going to be a little bit more positive. The previous episodes were a little bit more dark and evil. <laughs> so depending on your character type, you know which episode to choose. And then in, uh, in a couple of days, there might be another little special episode coming up. Ooh, bit of mystery. Bit of mystery there. Chapter 6. Elevate your perspective. The law of short-sightedness. It is in the animal part of your nature to be most impressed by what you can see and hear in the present, the latest news reports and trends, the opinions and actions of the people around you, whatever seems the most dramatic. This is what makes you fall for alluring schemes that promise quick results and easy money. This is also what makes you overreact to present circumstances, becoming overly exhilarated or panicky as events turn one direction or the other. Learn to measure people by the narrowness or breadth of their vision. Avoid entangling yourself with those who cannot see the consequences of their actions, who are in a continual reactive mode. They will infect you with this energy. Your eyes must be on the larger trends that govern events, on that which is not immediately visible. Never lose sight of your long-term goals. With an elevated perspective, you will have the patience and clarity to reach almost any objective. So we humans tend to live in the moment and it's a big part of our animal side of our nature. It is to react straight away to the things we see and hear. But human reality where we're lucky and we're different to normal animals is our reality encompasses both the past and the future. So we have the potential to really elevate our perspective and not just be living moment to moment. Yeah, unlike almost every other animal, in fact, probably every other animal, we can see that where we are currently is a direct result of the long, endless chain of things that have happened in the past, this historical causation. And we can also recognize that whatever we do today is going to have consequences that stretch far into the years ahead. 
So, we can't be caught into this animal idea of just constantly reacting to the present. We need to really consider what is going to happen in the future. What are the ramifications of this action? Our only antidote to all of this chaos is to train ourselves to continually detach from the immediate rush of events that are just keep happening all the time and elevate our perspective. So, instead of merely reacting... We must look at the wider context of all the shit that's going down. Yeah, exactly. But he says that it's you know it's a sense of sanity to realize that your actions have a wider ranging impact, but it does not come naturally. The natural thing is to just react in the moment, but it takes a lot of effort. But he says that this is pretty much the height of human wisdom to be able mm-hmm. to step back and recognize what are the future consequences of this. So when you step back and you raise your perspective, you may decide that the best thing to do is just hang on, just chill out, not to react at all to what's what kind of stimuli is happening. Yeah, sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing. Absolutely. So there's a whole bunch of different signs of short-sightedness and strategies to overcome them. Yeah, the first one is uh, a thing called unintended consequences. So you take some form of action and the end result is something you never predicted. And there's a sick story uh, about 19th century India it was under British rule and authorities decided that there were too many venomous cobras in the street of Delhi and they thought, okay, we're going to offer a cash reward for anyone who brings in a dead cobra to the government offices. So, people started bringing in these dead cobras, getting a bit of coin as their reward and then people started to latch on and thought, hang on, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. They started breeding cobras in order to get more money, obviously. Mm. And then when the government caught on to this, they thought, okay, well, this is not working the way we thought. We're going to cancel the program. And then all the cobra breeders, they got pissed off and angry. They had no use for these anymore. So, they released all their, their breeding into the streets. And the number of venomous snakes on the streets actually tripled from before the, uh, the incentive. So, they had this great idea. Oh, this is a good way to reduce the amount of venomous snakes on the street. But they had this unintended consequence of actually tripling the amount of snakes. Yeah. On the surface, it sounds like a good idea, but then uh, you're planning for the A and B, but you're not thinking about the C, the D, the E, the F, and all these other things that can come if you elevate and jump out of the moment and see things from a wider context. Other stories he's got here where people have really fucked this up <laughs> is uh, in the 1920s, the US brought along prohibition, right? Yeah. That's Which actually to- led to more alcohol consumption. Everyone... Once you uh, ban the forbidden fruit, all of a sudden it tastes a lot sweeter. It's crazy. It's like uh, on a on a small level, like if you've got a rebellious teenager and you think you try to control them or um, confiscate their phone or ban them from going to a party, they actually become more rebellious. Mm, absolutely. Another one that just popped up in my head as as we were saying that is like, say if you're getting micromanaged by your boss, mm. it might be solving the problem in that one moment, whatever task is happening right then and there. But over the years, that micromanaged employee is going to have resent towards you because they don't have the autonomy and the trust to actually do their role. So, in the long run, it does uh, do the opposite of what was originally intended. Yeah, it's all these unintended consequences. So, what Green says is a bit of a solution or a cure to this is you've got to firstly recognize that the world is completely complex uh, and you know anything you do, there's going to be equally complex reactions to that. So, you might just be thinking, if I do A, B is going to happen. And as you said, you've got to realize there is C, there is D, there is E. And once it gets outside of your control, you, you can't predict how other people are going to react to the C, the D, or the E, and it's just going to spiral out of control. So the only solution is to really try as hard as you can to think about what are the potential ramifications from this, not just the immediate next result, but how are other people then going to react to that. Mm, you got to imagine as far as you can logically logically go. 
And I think for the as the default, just assume that you can probably go a lot further than mm. you are now because most human beings, including me and you, Ashto, we definitely. definitely don't go that far. 100% in. So that story you were pulling out then was all about unintended consequences. Other times where we really fuck it up is when we go down deep into tactical hell, where we get caught up in this present battle, we can lose sight of our long-term goals. So we've committed so much time to this one moment, this one bickering battle that you've had someone, you've really lost sight of what's going down in the long term. Yeah, all you get focused on is your ego and winning that battle, but you're never thinking of the long-term consequences. Another type of short-sightedness is what he calls ticker tape fever. If we're constantly watching the stock price and reacting to that rather than the long-term value of it, uh, that also applies to our real life. If we're constantly checking... Twitter and Facebook and the news updates and looking for real-time information, our patience is being eroded, but also as our attention span decreases, we've got less tolerance of any obstacles in the past. So, we're going to take the easy route with no obstacles, mm. which is not probably not going to be the best route. Another one is loss in trivia. So, another way of looking at that is like, you know, if you're saying you're, you're straightening the deck chairs when the Titanic's going down, I mean, this happens <laughs> every day in like your practical life. If you're just doing busy, just doing fucking bull a bullshit work and you're not doing the hard priority stuff, then this is uh, this falls in this loss in trivia category where you're not keeping sight of your long-term vision of the stuff you're trying to do. Yeah, he says if you're getting overwhelmed, if you think your work's so complex and you're so busy and you know there's all these details to get on top of and you, things are starting to slip out of your control and you can't work out which facts are more important, it's a, a sure sign that you've lost sense of your priorities and you're getting stuck in this trivia. So these are all the ways that we become short-sighted or ways that we can recognize that we are being short-sighted. And then he's got a few solutions to elevate our perspective and regain a bit of clarity on the long-term. So you need to regain sight of your long-term goals. If everything begins to seem of equal importance, you need some kind of mental filtering system. And I mean, goals are like the... Everyone just talks about goals, but they're really huge, man, because if you understand what's important to you, you can have some kind of priorities. You know when something pops up and then you know straight in your head in terms of what values you hold based on your goals. You can say, no, I'm not doing that. I need to spend more time doing this. Yeah, exactly. Rather than just getting caught up in the instant and reacting to everything that's happening, we need to, what he says is like create a bit of a ladder of priorities of our long-term goal. So then this is like our, our mental filtering system where when something pops up, we filter it through, is this achieving my, my, um, my priorities and ranking things based on the order of importance, this ladder of your priorities. So the far-sighted human has got all this shit together. He says, awareness <laughs> that a year from now, this current problem you're experiencing will hardly seem so important, will help you lower your anxiety and adjust your priorities. Knowing that time will reveal the weakness of your plans, you become more careful and deliberate with them. Oh, mate, I love it. And he says that in terms of, you know, if you're thinking tactics versus strategies, he says that in life, as well as in warfare, strategists always prevail over tacticians. Chapter 8, change your circumstances by changing your attitude, the law of self-sabotage. Each of us has a particular way of looking at the world, of interpreting the events and actions of people around us. This is our attitude and it determines much of what happens to us in life. If our attitude is essentially fearful, we see the negative in every circumstance. We stop ourselves from taking chances. We blame others for mistakes and fail to learn from them. If we feel hostile or suspicious, we make others feel such emotions in our presence. We sabotage our career and relationships by unconsciously creating the circumstances we fear most. The human attitude, however, is malleable. 
by making our attitude more positive, open, and tolerant of other people, we can spark a different dynamic. We can learn from adversity, create opportunities out of nothing, and draw people to us. We must explore the limits of our willpower and how far it can take us. So it's important to recognize that everything that we're seeing and and, uh, deciding around us is not really based on an objective reality. Everything that we're thinking is filtered through our subjective experiences, and that's going to be based on our attitude. He says that our attitude is like a, a particular lens that colors and shapes our perceptions. So whatever our attitude is, when we see something in the world, it filters through that and we interpret it based on what our attitude is. Carl Jung says attitude is the readiness of the psyche to act in a certain way. So it's like this default setting we've all got. So the objective reality happens, default setting, whatever your psyche might be, just goes boom and just fucking shapes the whole thing based on whatever your attitude might be. And then in, as a result, this actually shapes the whole reality as it is for you. Yeah, he said it's like a, it's a real self-fulfilling prophecy in that if, you're, if you've got a positive attitude expecting positive things to happen, when you see the world, it's going to be filtered through in a positive way and positive things are then going to happen. Whereas if you're expecting the worst, whatever you see in the world, you're thinking, oh man, that sucks that that happened to me and your attitude has filtered that through and of course, bad things are then going to happen to you. So if you've got a suspicious nature, you're more sensitive to facial expressions, for example, to display any kind of possible negativity because you're suspicious and this is your default setting you're looking for. So this is what Jung means by this readiness of the psyche to act in a certain way, right? Yeah, and he says that our attitudes are really shaped early on based on you know our upbringing, any traumas, any uh, disappointments that we're accumulating. These are all contributing to what our attitude is and what our outlook on life is. And these things really weigh us down. So as we get older, we really accumulate all these little disappointments that actually happen to us. And we're kind of haunted by this sense of worthlessness because of these previous disappointments. You know, we start to actually believe that we're not really deserving of the good things in life, right? Mm. So it's like you're... Whatever your dreams you had as a kid, you start picking up all of this baggage and then your your sense of worthlessness increases and then you kind of just say goodbye to all of your dreams and the hopes you had when you were younger. Mm. We all have these great moments of doubt. We don't believe in ourselves. You know, Some of these negative emotions can lead us to obsessively get stuck in our own minds and always thinking the worst and without realizing it, We've, we've developed this negative, fearful attitude towards life and then it's filtering through everything we see and as we said, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy and he calls it this self-imposed prison where we're only seeing the bad things that are happening around us. So without realizing it, this fearful attitude's taken over and the reason we're pulling it, it's a real strategy for us to manage our anxiety and disappointment. So it's an unconscious strategy we have but what we do as an unintended consequence is we really narrow our field of experiences because we're just trying to uh, uh, narrow it down to just this everything you can manage. But in reality, a positive attitude is the opposite. It's more adventurous and being more open to different circumstances that can happen to you. And that's it. That's the best part about this book is obviously firstly to understand and identify what is happening currently. So by identifying that our attitude has built up over the years and over the decades to be slightly negative, now that we've recognized it, we can start to consciously decide to shift towards a more positive attitude and he's got a sick example of you know this exact same scenario but two very different approaches based on their attitude about a student going to paris so one student is a bloke 
he rocks up to Paris. He's American. He's there to study for a year, and he's a little bit cautious, a little bit timid, got a bit of depression, low self-esteem, uh, but he's pretty excited about the opportunity to go and hang out in Paris. But once there, he finds it a little bit hard to speak the language as you do French. He fucks up a few times, making mistakes, uh, and he's got a slightly derisory attitude to the Parisians because they are making it hard for him now as he's making these mistakes. So he finds the people there not friendly at all. The weather is damp and gloomy. Uh, the food's a little bit too rich. Although he has a couple of nice moments, he generally feels un- alienated and unhappy. The weather is damp and gloomy and sucks. So he concludes Paris is overrated and an unpleasant place. Yeah. That was, if you contrast that to the exact same scenario, you've got a, a girl studying, going to Paris for the year. She's super excited. She's not too bothered about making mistakes because she knows that she's going to learn as she goes. She's extroverted. She's got an adventurous spirit. She looks for ways to learn the language. She sees it as a pleasant challenge. Uh, She always is looking for ways to engage further. She's made a few friends. Her French is improving as she goes and she finds that the weather is romantic. It's such a lovely place. The architecture is phenomenal. It's such an amazing place to be around. The smells are great. The sights are great. And really, she just loves Paris. Mm. It's a phenomenal experience for her. So, as a way of objective reality, Paris has just been bloody Paris. The weather in Paris has just been the weather. The clouds are just simply passing by. So, the world simply exists as it is and things or events aren't good or bad. They're not right or wrong. They're not ugly or beautiful. It is we with our particular perspectives who add color or subtract subtract the color from the things mm. and from the different people that actually happen to us. So, if you think of the bloke, obviously, he's got this constricted, narrow, negative attitude. He was feeling insecure. He was reacting defensively. He found it difficult. He felt isolated. His energy was low. And so, all these things, even though it was an objective reality, they're both in the exact same situation, his attitude filtered the way he looked at it and hence all of his reactions and it turned to this self-fulfilling negative prophecy. So, for if you've got that negative attitude like the bloke, you know, life is always going to be inherently chaotic and unpredictable. So, as you got older, if you've got this constricting attitude just to manage the outside events, you're really going to make psychological growth nearly impossible because you're not allowing any kind of uncertainty inside. So, your task as, as a student of human nature is twofold, Rob says. First, you need to become aware of your own attitude. Yeah, we, as we said, that our attitude slants our perceptions. So, it's obviously important as a very first step to recognize within yourself what is your attitude? What have you built up over the years and decades of your life that is coloring how you see the world? As a little bit of a kind of thermometer to, to test your own attitude, one way you can understand it, you need to look at how you judge other people when they're not around. Are you quick to focus on their positive qualities or their negative qualities and you're bitching about them? Or are you forgiving when it comes to all their flaws? Are you quick to gloss over their mistakes or do you make them you know, pay for all, every single mistake they have? Mm. Man, it's a, it is an important one and it is like how you judge other people is, is, is a real indicator of your own um, attitudes. So then the second part, after we've become aware of our own, the second part is to believe in our supreme power to alter our circumstances. We do have a choice here. We can change our attitudes and hence we can change what happens. So like all of Green's chapters, he sets up the problems, but thank God he's got some of these <laughs> solutions to uh, the bit of the dilemma you find yourself in toward the end. So first of all, how you need to see the world. You need to see the world or yourself as an explorer. So with the gift of consciousness, you stand before a vast and unknown universe that we humans have just begun to investigate. And that's for everybody. You know probably like jack shit compared to what you could be known. So there's a whole bunch of stuff for you to go out there and find out about. 
He says, you also need to leave all this certainty behind you. So as people get older, what they tend to do is they replace curiosity with conviction. So by the time you're 30, you act as if you know everything you need to know. One little bit I really like to you says, you're not concerned of appearing inconsistent to others or developing ideas that directly contradict what you believed just a few months before. I mean, this is something I've had to deal with a lot. I've held uh, ideas from three years ago at the time. If I look back on it, I felt like a fucking idiot, but it's almost embarrassing at times uh, contradicting yourself so much to what you were previously. But Greeno says this is a good thing, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, no, it's a good thing to change your mind, I think for sure. As long as, as he says, if you've got too much conviction and you're 30 and you think you know everything, then you're never going to develop to the next level, I guess. So having that curiosity and being open to changing your mind is definitely definitely a good thing. Strong opinions loosely held. That's Shout it. out to our Steve Kloveski, <laughs> the man. Uh, a few things he says here like how should we look at certain situations? So one thing is adversity. So it's a bit like the obstacle is the way and that if you see an obstacle rather than cow away cower away from it and seeing it as a negative, see it as an opportunity, a learning experience, a way to get stronger. Now, how to view yourself? He says, as we get older, we place limits on ourselves and how far we can go in life. As I was saying a little bit earlier, but over the years, we internalize these doubts and criticisms of others. So you don't need to be so humble internally and self-effacing to the world. Such humility, it's not a virtue, but it, it is a value other people promote to keep you down. I mean, that's a big one in Australia with our tall poppy syndrome. We uh, promote humility just so probably we don't feel as bad when everyone else is doing better than yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's interesting that he says you know, using humility to other people as a way to keep you down. It's an interesting one to definitely ponder on, especially for, as you say, for us Aussies and perhaps for me specifically as well. Um, But it's also like, you know, he's saying that humility can be a bad thing because if it means that you're too humble and you're not getting out there and trying things and selling yourself and selling your ideas, it can definitely become a negative. So, view yourself in a more positive way with with a bit more confidence. And how to view other people. And I really, really like that he says, you need to see people as facts of nature. So, people come in all kinds of varieties like flowers, like rocks. There are fools, there's saints, there's sociopaths, egomaniacs, noble warriors. There are (laughs) sensitive and insensitive. But each single person plays a role in the social ecology. So, you must accept diversity and the fact that people are what they are. So, when you come against a a fuckwit who goes complete opposite to what you are, just accept them as a fact of nature like you see you know, like a rhinoceros in the wild or something. <laughs> That's it, man. That's, the negative attitude would just be to think that anyone who's outside of what you think is a good person is just a douchebag, whereas a positive attitude sees variety as a positive thing and, and recognizes that there are purposes for all these different types of people, even the douchebags. Chapter 2. Transform self-love into empathy. The law of narcissism. We all naturally possess the most remarkable tool for connecting to people and attaining social power, empathy. When cultivated and properly used, it can allow us to see into the moods and minds of others, giving us the power to anticipate people's actions and gently lower their resistance. This instrument, however, is blunted by a habitual self-absorption. We are all narcissists, some deeper on the spectrum than others. Our mission in life is to come to terms with this self-love and learn how to turn our sensitivity outward towards others instead of inward. We must recognize at the same time the toxic narcissists among us before getting enmeshed in their dramas and poisoned by their envy. 
So we humans have a never-ending need for attention. You know, we're social animals at our core. Our actual survival and our happiness depends on the bonds we form with others. And if you know, other people aren't giving you any attention, you can't really connect with them on any level. Yeah, in, in terms of like biolo- biologically, we need to be part of a group. We need to be with others in order to survive. And he says it psychologically. We also need to feel like we're recognized, to feel like we're appreciated. And our se- sense of self-worth depends on us feeling that other people like and appreciate us. So we've got this serious hunger for attention. But the big pain in the ass on this is there's a big problem. There's only so much attention to go around. So people got their own bloody problems to deal with they don't necessarily care about yours so uh, you need the attention there's only so much you go around so you cannot really rely on others to give you constant validation even though you crave it so much yeah so our solution because we need so much attention and because everybody needs so much attention they're all caught up in their own minds we create this self-image and this idea of ourselves that we build up and then we give ourselves this love we we build up this idea of how good we are and then we love ourselves and that's how we're getting the attention we need Mm, so when you create this self-image what you would do is you accentuate all your positive qualities and explain away your flaws like you're not that bad like yeah if no one's giving you attention you explain well you know you're not such a bad person you you know you, you you still got it you're good it's all good but if done properly you're going to have some self-love to fall back to and cherish when all else fails and you got no, no attention if you go too far in building yourself up in your own mind then it's going to conflict with reality and people will soon let you know that maybe you're not as good as you think you are but it's this like self-image that we tend to focus inwards when we're not getting enough attention from others we just look into ourselves and our self-image and start to soothe ourselves that way so all of a sudden when we've built a healthy sense of self then we are no longer dependent on others for giving us the attention and recognition that we explained at the start. All of a sudden right now, we have what he says is self-esteem. And like most chapters, man, the parents manage to fuck us up in a a variety of ways, but they do it with our self-esteem as well. So on one hand, if mothers or fathers are deep narcissists themselves and they're too absorbed to acknowledge the child when it's trying to have early efforts at being an individual, then it's not going to develop it. But on the other end of the spectrum, if they are over-involved, are suffocating with attention, isolating it from others and trying to live through their child to you know, progress their own journey, then again, the child's going to be too smothered yeah. to develop itself. So uh, in both cases, abandonment or enmeshment, the child will have no self to retreat to, no foundation of self-esteem and then com- feel completely dependent on the attention of others to make them feel worthy. Man, it's, tough for, it's a tough world for parents. If you give them too much attention, you fuck them up. If you don't give them enough attention, you fuck them up. <laughs> Goldilocks. <laughs> Need to be just right. Man, there's a sick line here. He says, it's ironic that the term narcissism has come to mean self-love when it is in fact the case that the worst narcissists have no cohesive self to love. Mm. That's a fair banger. Mate, because it's true. If you think of all the classic narcissists you come across, it's all purely for external validation, right? Mm. All this self-love that they're projecting is just to try and get validation from everyone else. Whereas in, in reality, if they really love themselves... They wouldn't have to seek the external validation from anyone else in the first mm. place. It's fantastic. Fuck, that's a big banger. It's a papa. So, as a student of human nature, as this book is, we're all studying ourselves and studying other humans. The first thing we need to do is to be honest with ourselves. We're all mm. narcissists. You can't, you can't try to bullshit it away saying, no, I'm not like that. Everybody's a narcissist. Everybody yeah. loves themselves. Everybody is focused on themselves. Yeah, it's, it's the bloody truth. It's, uh, you know, the only thing is we're all on different scales of the, the spectrum. So in a conversation, we're all champing at the way, the bit to talk, to tell our stories, to give your opinion and your advice, 
you know, we all like a bit of flattery because of our self-love. Mate, there's a good one here that uh, reminded me of you, mate. Oh, says He says that the moralizers try to separate themselves and denounce these narcissists. They say how bad it is to be narcissistic, but really they're the biggest narcissists, these moralizers, these grandstanders, because they just love the sound of their own voice when they're telling people off. Fuck, <laughs> It's like you threw a dagger at the end of the tale, but it's painfully true. You know, being a moralizer, saying all the good shit you're doing, it's not about the good shit you're doing. It's about everyone else's perception of you of doing good shit so you feel good. Oh, too funny, mate. Well, that's the, that's the first thing is just to be open and honest and recognize it. So, mate, step one, you've, you've recognized it. That's good. Step two is to start to transition towards healthy narcissism. As Green said, everybody's a narcissist. You're never going to completely remove it, but you need to shift to a more healthy level of narcissism. So you need to be grow this stronger and even more resilient sense of self to fall back on. So you do not need the validation from others. You need to realize that at some point in their life, they had their limits and their flaws as well. Mm. So the people who are healthy narcissists can laugh at their own flaws and not take all these insults personally. That's good, mate. You laughed it off. Yeah. So that's good, mate. Step two tick as well. And so once we've got you know this stronger sense of self and more self-esteem, when we don't need to then focus so much internally, we can start to shift this self-love and turn it outwards. And what we can do is we can turn this love towards our work, which means we can become great artists or creators or inventors, or we can also direct this love towards other people. And this is where the empathy comes in. When you start to turn the love from yourself outwards, you can start to develop empathy. Yeah, I really like that. You can probably tell the difference between the people and the artists who are doing work uh, the, the, the difference between the people who are doing it just purely for other people and then you got the other side of the spectrum, the people who are doing it just for the, uh, the great art and the great masterpiece they're trying to do, not through external validation but through the work itself. Mm. I think that's where it comes into it. If you've got the self-esteem, you can probably go to the, the latter one that I just described. Yeah, we, we do all have this tremendous ability within ourselves but it lies largely dormant in most people because we are so self-absorbed and so self-obsessed. And he says that you know it's actually getting worse and worse. Like say there was a study that since the 1970s, we're becoming more and more and more self-obsessed. And, he, and Green is suggesting that perhaps it's you know internet and smartphones, rather than truly engaging with other people and try to have conversations with other people, we've always got the option to switch off from them, go back to our smartphones and become more absorbed in ourselves. Yeah, so it's just purely self, but when there's an opportunity for other people, when you've got a bit of space, nah, yeah. you go back into <laughs> back the cell phone. And it's probably back to the cell, something to do with checking likes on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's, yeah there's no development there. So, the good thing is... We've got a bit of a solution here uh, and there's four components to get the empathy skill set. The first step towards developing this empathy is an empathic attitude. So, he says more than anything, empathy is really just a state of mind. It's an attitude. It's the way we look at it. It's really a choice to begin to start to turn your love and introspection into looking outwards and looking to other people instead of just yourself. He says the greatest danger you've got... Uh, in this, in this development is the general assumption that you really understand people mm. and you quickly to judge and categorize them. I mean, all people out there, they're quite interesting. So, don't just categorize them. There's a whole bunch of shit you don't know that you have the potential to find out from. Yeah, we are very quick to judge others. And one example he says of this snap judgment is what he calls or what's called attribution bias. And generally, when we personally make a mistake, we attribute it to some kind of external circumstance beyond our control that we couldn't have managed to predict. 
But when someone else makes a mistake, we tend to attribute it to them personally, some kind of character, character flaw or limitation. Yeah. <laughs> so... That attribution bias definitely works against us. We need to fight that. Yeah, it's it's not good for the other person. <laughs> it's it's not good for ourselves either to externalize nah. the blame. Yeah, <laughs> we're losing the short term, I'd say. <laughs> Could be. a bit better that night. The second papa, or the second step, or this what do we call it? Second, yeah, second step. Second step is to develop visceral empathy. So it's hard for us to figure out someone's exact precise thoughts, but we can certainly pick up their feelings or moods. So. Uh, rather than just look at the words they're saying, which is like the, I guess, the, the obvious one people mm. look at, really try to understand their emotion that's coming behind the words and their body language and, and all of these things to uh, develop that empathy. Yeah, it was like the book we did recently, the definitive book of body language, that what people do uh, can really give away you know, something different to what they're actually saying with their words. So he says that before you listen to what they're saying, you need to listen to how they're saying it, like the tone of the voice, and also what are they really saying with that body language. The third thing, the third step is analytical empathy you need to develop. So beyond the physical empathy, we must gather information in order to take it to the next level. So we're getting pretty high here. Yeah, he says that like our close friends and our family, we can generally be more empathic with them and we can probably understand them a little better. And that's because we do have a lot more information about them. We know sort of, we know who they are, we know their background, we know their tastes, we know their opinions. And it's like, it's much easier for us to understand our friends and family than to understand a complete stranger. So the more info you can gather about someone, the more likely you are to be able to truly understand what they're feeling and thinking. So we need to understand deeply what their values are. Like we covered previously, man, everyone's got a different kind of filter of the world. They're not going to see it the same way you do. So uh, say a man's crying, one person will see that as weak, another person will see that as strength. Mm. So each single person has different values you understand person by person. And the fourth papa, the fourth step is to view empathy as a skill. So it's like something that we're constantly developing. It's like a muscle that we're training. And so like any new skill, there are a few crucial things to developing it. One is feedback. So he says that a big uh, factor in improving our skill is feedback, both direct and indirect. So if you've got a level of trust with the person, you can actually ask them either, you know, what are they thinking or what are they feeling? And you can then see if your guess was correct or not. And if it's someone that, you know, that level of trust isn't there, you can't directly ask them. An indirect way of trying to gather a bit of feedback is try to work out whether you're in rapport with this person or if you've had any impact on their mood throughout your conversation. Advance with a sense of purpose, the law of aimlessness. Unlike animals, with their instincts to guide them past dangers, we humans have to rely on our conscious decisions. We do the best we can when it comes to our career path and handling the inevitable setbacks in life. But in the back of our minds, we can sense an overall lack of direction as we are pulled this way and that way by our moods and by the opinions of others. How did we end up in this job in this place? Such drifting can lead to dead ends. The way to avoid such a fate is to develop a sense of purpose, discovering our calling in life and using knowledge to guide us in our decisions. We come to know ourselves more deeply, our tastes and inclinations. We trust ourselves, knowing which battles and detours to avoid. Even in our moments of doubt, even our failures have a purpose to toughen us up. With such energy and direction, our actions have unstoppable force. This is a great chapter on purpose. And I think it's a, the most tangible, most actionable, most, most realistic advice that we've read 
on this sort of topic from books. We've read a lot about, you know, quit your job and follow your passion, which is unrealistic. Uh, and, you know, the, the, we've talked about the downside of following your passion, but this is saying the, this is the importance of having a purpose, having an aim, having some uh, longer-term thing to guide you throughout your life and your career. So to soothe our, the pain from our aimlessness, you know, the opposite of having a purpose is really aimlessness. We mesh ourselves in various forms of pleasure and kind of short-term gains. Yeah, it's all about where the aimless, like having a purpose is having something long-term that we're building towards. And if we don't have that, then we just revert to short-term pleasure, which is not beneficial to the long-term whatsoever. Now, the only solution to the dilemma is to find a high sense of purpose to this aimlessness. So it's a mission that will provide us our own direction and not only... Uh, and not that of our parents, friends, or peers, what they want us to do. And this mission that we find is intimately connected to our individuality, you know, the part that makes us really unique. Yeah, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, We have a responsibility to set out to discover what we are made for, to discover our life's work, to discover what we are called to do. So I think it's a, it's a good way of talking about, you know, not just quit your job and follow your passion, but there is, it is important that there is something deep within us that makes us unique that we need to be striving towards so you need to go out there and find it and it's not it's not bloody easy at all um so but once you hear the voice and you find it and you understand what your purpose is and why you're really here there's no going back right the Mm. course has been set deviating from this course that you've found that's going to cause anxiety and pain yeah it's a bit like the the book we did the Dao de jing saying that if you're doing what you're meant to be doing then it feels good if you're relaxing on the beach, you might think all I want to do is lie on the beach and drink cocktails and that's going to be pleasurable. After a very, uh, At first, it's good, but after a while, you realize there is actually pain there because you're not doing what you're meant to be doing. You're either not following the Tao or you're not following that sense of purpose. Now, Robert brings it to earth here. He says, in the not so distant, part, in the not so distant past, people's career and life choices were pretty much limited. You choose... Extremely. You choose, you know, I want to be a lawyer and that's it. Your course is set, you go up the ladder and that's it. And it's also like you're pretty much restricted to a small geographic location as well mm. in the past. But, you know, today obviously there are huge changes. It's very hard to find stability. Mm. And people go about it with two different techniques. One strategy is to just um, embrace all the change and keep jumping from job to job and, you know, you, you take the smorgasbord of opportunities what you can. And the other way to do it is to really choose stability in this chaotic world and you choose the one career path and try and be safe. Yeah. Unfortunately, both of those... You could. Yeah, both of those are wrong. Both of those yield problems later. In the first case, if you think, oh, there's so many opportunities, I'm going to try everything and jump from opportunity to opportunity from job to job you're really not developing any solid skills like in so good they can't ignore you're not building career capital you're not making yourself rare and valuable and alternatively if you do go for that stability and you commit to something in your 20s then in your 30s you might think i missed out on all those opportunities and now you're feeling a bit uh, lifeless almost and that you've missed a lot of opportunities and that midlife crisis might be a bit of early onset yeah, and the pain that you feel, you might get bored, you might feel anxious and stressed and then over mm. time, you might feel depressed if you're uh, inclined for aimlessness and without this purpose. Mm. So, you know, all of us want to believe that there's some meaning and calling kind of thing to our lives and that we're connected to something much larger than ourselves. Mate, thankfully there is a way out. 
they're not the only two options we can take, thankfully, because <laughs> otherwise we're, we're not looking so good. Yeah, this is very practical advice to find your purpose. It's, it's, it's an overused phrase, go find your purpose, go mm. find your calling or whatever. This is probably the only book that has some kind of um, practical, practical kind of advice on how to actually find it. And what he says is each human is radically unique by out of one-of-a-kind DNA. So the particular way your brain is wired and the experiences that you've had that are really just unique to you um, and experiences that no one else in the world has had. So there are some things that, there are some things about you that make you you and you're unique to the rest of the world. Mm, and that's all we need to connect with, obviously. We need to cultivate this uniqueness because it does provide a bit of a path to follow, not an exact step-by-step step, but an overarching I guess, guide. And he talks about a few examples like Steve Jobs when he saw electronics, I think he was, when he was 19 and he just had this uh, in a pull towards it. Or he talks about even Tiger Woods when he was two years old, saw his dad practicing his golf swing in the garage and, and he, as a two-year-old, lit up. And that what drove him, this inner drive, this inner uniqueness that drove him towards success and later some personal failures. <laughs> I think he's on his way back at the moment. He's back. He's back, man. But that's it. You got to um, find out what your uniqueness is and then have that as your internal guidance system. Mm. Um, there's other chapters where you might be in this book where you're pulled by the, the group and you're so influenced, but you really want to avoid doing that and find out what makes you you and follow that. Yeah, most definitely, man. He talks about that if you are young, because we do have so many opportunities at the moment, it's up to you if you're just starting out to experience all these different opportunities and bring in some of these different experiences, absolutely, when you're young. And if you're older and listening to this, you have already developed a lot of skills. So you need to recognize that you do have a lot of skills, but it's up to you to now sort of mold them a little bit and adapt towards the direction of your true calling. Absolutely. So do not bypass this work of discovering your calling. It is work. It's not easy to go and find this. It just You can't just wait for it to just uh, magically just pop up in your life. It, it requires proactive effort on your half. Yeah, it talks about some of the things that we need to do. So we need to examine moments in our life when certain tasks or activities felt natural or felt easy for you. And he used the analogy of like swimming downstream, like swimming with the current. If you're swimming against the current, it's it's going to feel labored, it's going to feel tough. But if you're swimming with the current, it's going to feel a lot more natural and comfortable. And that's the type of feeling, he says, that you get when you're getting closer to discovering your calling in life. Mm. Yeah, that's it, man. So that's, uh, that's, that's one way you can find it. And experimenting with all the skills and options in the world related to your personality and inclinations, he says, is not only the single most essential step in developing a high sense of purpose, it is perhaps the most important step in life in general. Wow. That's, a, that's a big call. He also says that we should use resistance and negativity uh, to spur us on a bit. So most people try to avoid pain, avoid doing things that they're not good at. But Robert Greene says that sometimes frustration is a sign that you're making progress because you're getting to do things that are bigger and more complicated and uh, tougher to achieve and they take higher levels of skill which you're yet to attain. So if you are on the right path, things are starting to get difficult. It's almost like that dip where you're in the middle phase there where you realize that there's a long slog ahead of you before you get to mastery and that sometimes there are these negative things that you're not going to be good at straight away, but that can, that can be a good sign that you're on the right track. Mm. Love it, man. And, mate, there's, uh, so that's, that's all from the internal guidance system. 
to pull you toward what your purpose is and then you're going to uh, go through the dips and all that mm. kind of stuff like you were saying. There's also the lure of false purposes, which is really an external thing um, that really drives you. And he's got a whole list of them in the book, but the most popular one and most common is definitely the pull of money and success. Yeah. we If we're looking to money or success or status as a motivator, as you know, a purpose, then we're definitely on the wrong track. So, you know, it could be that we've had external pressure, parental or peer pressure uh, to go towards one way, but he's saying that anything that's external is wrong, and especially this money and success because in the long run, it definitely doesn't get to where you want to go. Mm, at the very start of your career, if you're just chasing money when you're fresh out of uni, you're going to just enter the fields that make the most of the money the fastest. And this is one of the biggest mistakes you make in the pursuit of money. Rather than cultivating the parts that are unique in you and you're experimenting with all the different gamut of things that are available in the world, you just choose the highest paying job. Hmm. So, you narrow your whole field into one thing which isn't going to really in the long run pay off at all. I think there's a ceiling there as well that maybe at first you might be making a lot of money but if you're not truly engaged with it, you're not going to be doing the things that are required to get towards mastery. And so, whilst you might make a lot of money at the start, there's definitely a ceiling to it where you're never going to get to the really big um, success or the really big internal success really that's guiding you. Mm. So, it's like it's similar to the, he says, like hyper-intention. He relates this pursuit of money and these external goals quite similar to uh, the pursuit of trying to fall asleep. Mm. I know this from personal experience. <laughs> I've had fucking horrible sleeps in the past where I'm trying to fall asleep and as soon as you start trying, mm. you're cooked. Yeah. When you get that idea that uh, I've got something really important tomorrow so I really need to get a good night's sleep and when you're trying to sleep, it's almost impossible to sleep and then it's just like a, a vicious cycle where then you get more stress that you're not asleep which makes it even harder to get to sleep. So, the, the harder you're trying to get this, the less likely you are to attain it. So, that's what he talks about money that at the start, if you're just striving for money, 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 you're really never going to get to the money that you seek. Many of the most successful, famous and wealthy individuals, they don't begin with a, an obsession about money and status. It comes as a byproduct of them just following their sense of purpose and their, uh, through their sense of purpose, they do obtain mastery and they do obtain those rare and valuable skills and then money kind of just follows them where they go. I think we can even talk about Robert Greene himself. The first book he did almost 20 years ago now, The 48 Laws of Power, was definitely not a mainstream book that was going to make him a lot of money. So he wasn't driven by money because you know he's written a massive four or 500 page book with all these historical ancient examples in different sections and he's got quotes throughout and different things on the side. It was like no other book ever seen before and specifically no other book uh, in the bestseller list. But what he did was he was following his own internal sort of guidance. That's what he wanted to build. And it was a bit of a flop initially. But over the course of 10 years, people started to pick it up and it started to spread. And then down the track a decade later, he did achieve this financial success and sold a hell of a lot of books. We hope you enjoyed that episode, our third episode on The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. They're 18 standalone sections. We tackle a couple in each episode. If you haven't listened to part one or part two yet, you can uh, pick either one and have a listen. It's a phenomenal book. It's both of our number one books of all time. If you'd like to grab a copy of the book, we'd love it if you could use the link in the episode description in the show notes. 
it gives us a little tiny slice of that purchase. You can use that link to buy any book, in fact. Obviously, we strongly recommend this one. But any book you like, use that link and it just gives us 5% of that purchase. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy a book.